invite you to turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. I missed so much about church last Sunday. Fellowshipping with you all was right at the top of the list. So thank you for uh, those of you who have been so kind and uh, we've been able to interact already this morning. It's so good to be with you. Uh, I missed your singing. Well, I really missed your singing, so it was good to hear you sing again this morning. I love sitting near the front. One of the benefits of that is you, you hear all the singing from behind, and it kind of bounces off the wall and hits you again uh, there, and so I'm, I'm thankful for that. And then I do miss going line by line through the Bible with you. And so I look forward to doing that with you. We're in Mark chapter 2 this morning, verses 1 through 12. And uh, we want to highlight again, of course, the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's been some time since we were together uh, uh, in Mark's gospel, and so I thought I'd just briefly remind us a little bit of what uh, Mark is doing in Mark chapters 1 and 2. Of course, uh, his main emphasis, uh, starting in Mark chapter 1, verse 14, and then going the whole way on down to chapter 3 and verse 6, is on the authority of Jesus, his divine authority, his absolute power. Uh, I think this large section that goes from Mark 1.14 through 3.6 can be divided into two subsections. Uh, so if you were to write one word over the whole section, you could write the word authority, but then you could divide it in half. And uh, within here, I think that you see in the first part, chapter 1, verses 14 through 45, where Mark emphasizes the way people respond to Jesus, and then he emphasizes a different response in chapter 2 and into chapter 3. Now, can you imagine how people might respond to someone as authoritative as Jesus was? I mean, we, we already saw, we've been seeing his authority. I mean, crowds were flocking to him from every quarter of the region, the text says. Amazing things were being done. People were being healed. There was much attention being drawn to Christ. I'm sure people responded in different ways. And even in our own culture, I think uh, we, we highlight the fact that people can respond to uh, important people or famous people in very different ways. It, all I'd have to do this morning, if we're in a smaller group, would be to mention a, a certain celebrity or a politician. And I'm sure that I would be struck by different reactions. And those reactions might be anywhere on a spectrum from, I hate that person to, I love that person. When we come to this text in chapters 1 and chapter 2, we see that the way different people respond to Jesus. The first way in chapter 1 is uh, Mark talks about his growing popularity among the people in chapter 1. Chapter 1, he, he gives us phrases like, and, and at once his fame spread everywhere. The text says that uh, people were coming to Jesus from every quarter of the region, every area of the region to see him. That's how popular he was. Near the end of chapter 1, it says that Jesus could no longer openly go into a town or city because of his growing popularity. So chapter 1 emphasizes growing popularity. However, the text we're going to look at today into chapter 3 emphasizes a different reaction, a different response, and that is the growing opposition of the leaders, the growing hostility of the leaders. I want to show you this just in a few places before we look closely at our text Look at verse 6, chapter 2, verse 6. The growing opposition. Verse 6. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there and questioning in their hearts, 
Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. So we see here early on in the text, in one of these first healing narratives that you get in chapters 2 and chapter 3, the scribes begin to oppose Jesus. Now, their opposition begins internally. This is in their mind or in their hearts, and if it wouldn't be for Jesus, a little bit later on, we, we would have never have known what they were thinking. So the opposition starts faint. It starts small. Jesus says or does something, and then they begin to oppose him in their minds. They go to chapter 2, verse 16. It says, And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? So this opposition begins to grow, begins to mount. And here some of the scribes of the Pharisees, they go and they ask uh, Jesus' disciples about something Jesus was doing. This is just like the scribes, by the way. Instead of going right to the source, they go to his disciples and they ask him about that. The, the opposition is mounting. Go down to verse 24. You see they, they try the same thing, only they reverse it. Verse 24, and the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Here the Pharisees go to Jesus and they question him about what the disciples are doing. Again, I'd point out this is the same cowardly practice they used when they questioned Jesus about the disciples or when they questioned the disciples about Jesus. But this growing hostility gets to a point where at the end of this section, chapter 3 and verse 6, you can see that it, it, it reaches its peak. When in chapter 3, verse 6, it says, the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him. How to destroy him. Here the Pharisees being the primary religious group of their day, the religious leaders, the Herodians being the political leaders. They get together by the end of these stories or these narratives about Jesus and all of his displays of authority, and they, they take counsel among themselves in how to destroy this man. And so as we go throughout chapters 2 and chapters 3, we're going to see this other strand that, that Mark weaves into the text where we see the way the leaders oppose him. Now, why would leaders oppose Jesus like this? I mean, what factors caused them or what triggered their increasing opposition? Well, it all starts in chapter 2, verse 1. So look down in your Bible at this story. This story comes in four movements. We'll look at verses 1 and 2 at the beginning. It says, And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door, and he was preaching the word to them. First part of this story, I, I think, is just a description of the setting, the setting. Here, Jesus had re returned to Capernaum. The two halves of chapters one through three both start in Capernaum. He returns to Capernaum, and he's in a house. Okay, the, the, the ESV here reads at the end of verse one that he was at home, but that literally could be translated, he was in a house. He was in a house in Capernaum, and that's probably the way I'd prefer that you would translate this or take this. We don't know whose home it is or whose house it is. It may be the same house that he was in in chapter one. Remember, he was in Capernaum. He was in the house of Simon Peter. Uh, but here he is in a house, and the text says that many were gathered together. Many started assembling spontaneously to him in the house. There's so many people that the text says in verse two, if you look in your Bible, it says that so many people had gathered together that there was not even room to get through the doorway. 
The language here is strong. It describes a full house with people spilling out of the house onto the streets of the courtyard outside the house. Have you ever been in a home before and there was just way too many people in there? I remember once throwing a surprise party for Carissa. I think we invited too many people between my daughter and I. And the place was packed. Place is packed. Perhaps you've been in a crowded room like before, crowded house. Well, it was probably nothing like this. There was no room, not even in the doorway. But the main part of the story starts uh, with some unlikely circumstances in verses three and four. Look in your Bibles at verse three. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. Here, the main part of the story involves four men carrying a paralytic man toward Jesus, hoping that Jesus will be able to heal him. Now, honestly, we we don't know much about the word that is used for paralytic here, other than it seems as if the man is paralyzed, he's not able to move. I, I did a word study of the word, and it's not found in very many places. As a matter of fact, some of the only places it's found in the New Testament or in the Bible would be stories about this man in particular. There is one place in Matthew chapter 8 where, where there's another man who's, who's, who's a paralytic man. It says that, that uh, he was a paralytic man and that he was suffering from uh, severe pain. So it may be whatever this is, this, uh, this fact that you know, the man couldn't move, uh, that it's also accompanied by severe pain. And so they bring this man to Jesus. They want him to see Jesus. They're hoping that Jesus can heal him, but they can't even get through the doorways. And so they soon realize that to get to Jesus, they need to take the man up on top of the roof. And as they somehow get up on top of the roof, uh, perhaps taking some stairs or something on top of the roof, they begin to dig a hole in a thatched roof to get to Jesus. Can you imagine this story? Imagine this real life event. Uh, perhaps you've heard this from the time that you were a kid. Uh, but you, 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 Jesus is teaching, he's sharing, it says he's preaching the word to them. He's teaching the word to them. And as he does this, uh, things start falling out of the ceiling. Uh, the, you know, mud, uh, sticks start falling down, and then a hole appears in the ceiling. I, I was going to reproduce that this morning, uh, <laughs> but no one would go up into the roof. Stuff starts falling, a hole opens up, and then a man is lowered down into the house. It'd be quite distracting. It says the man is lowered down on a bed. The word bed here is a sleeping mat or a poor man's bed. But this bed, this mat that he is on, perhaps one of his only possessions, his four friends recondition into a stretcher to lower him down to see Jesus. These events lead to a healing in verses five through 10. But the healing comes in an unusual way, and I wanna just work our way through it, verse by verse, to see what Jesus does here. Look at verse five. It says, and when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. So this healing starts with an initial response by Jesus. The text says that Jesus senses the faith 
of these men. He sees their faith. So he sees visible manifestations of their belief in who he is. Now, when it says their faith, I don't think the text is especially clear as to whether that is the four men who brought him or the four men who brought him and the paralyzed man. Now, I tend to think it's all five of them. It's all five of them. But as they're lowering him down, Jesus sees their faith, and then he gives his initial response. Now, it's, it's really short, but I think it demands our close attention. He says, first of all, he says he gives him a title. He gives a title to this man. He calls him son, which is not an interesting, normal, it's not actually a normal form of address. The word is technon. It's, it's normally translated child, okay? And it may be that this paralytic man was a relatively young man. I think the point of the title, though, is, is Jesus is using this title to, uh, to encourage the man. He's using a title of familiarity to encourage the man. Uh, one commentator said it this way. He said, no doubt this title is designed to provide reassurance to the young man. Having reassured the young man, Christ then says, and this is the part you really need to focus on. He says, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, we come to this text with a very, uh, you know, each one of us come with different idea or understanding of who Jesus is, the Son of God. However, can you imagine yourself going back into this day, sitting in this house, having this paralytic man who's in pain, this young man, dropped to the ground on a, on a stretcher, then seeing Jesus respond to him and hearing this response? I mean, it is a very interesting response, isn't it? Now, if someone were to come to me for healing, right, in front of you all and say, you know, as if I could even do that, I don't believe in preachers healing people today, but, uh, you know, someone brought someone to me and uh, asked me to heal them, and I said, your, sons, your sins be forgiven you. What might you think of my response? We say, well, the preacher's strange. He's aloof. He's, he's not connected, or he's arrogant. But when Jesus says this, he's revealing something to us that's very important. This is not the type of response that us moderns would imagine from Christ here. We might think that he's way off topic or potentially rude, but let's, let's look at the response. How does Christ's response make sense? Um, did, he make, did it make sense when he originally said it? Or is there something that we're missing here? I want to answer those questions in two ways this morning. Uh, first of all, I want to suggest to you that many ancient people had a different view of sickness and disease than we as moderns often do. For instance, this morning I had Pastor James read a text of Scripture with you from John chapter 9. And uh, hidden within that text, near the beginning of that text, in verse 2, it, you have a betrayal of, of, or a portrayal of one of the ways that ancient people often thought about sickness. And you get it from the mouth of the disciples themselves. You remember the question they asked Jesus about this man? He said, Jesus, you remember, he's talking about a man who's born blind, born with sickness and disease, okay? He says, Jesus, who sinned 
this man or his parents, because he's born blind, so maybe it wasn't his sin, this man or his parents that he was born blind. Okay, so there in the, from the lips of the disciples themselves, I think you get the way many ancient Jewish people thought about disease and sickness. Their foundational belief was that disease must be attributed to someone's personal sin. You following with me? Someone had to sin for this to happen. It's probably the man, but it could also be his parents because they also thought like generational sins and curses that would go down for generations and generations. So they asked Jesus this question, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind like this? See, ancients thought of sickness and disease far differently than some of us often do. As a matter of fact, in the Jewish Talmud, there is a rabbi, there's an old rabbi who said, no one gets up from his sick bed until all of his sins are forgiven. So if you're actually listening to what this rabbi says, this Jewish leader, he's saying no one is going to be healed from their diseases until all of their sins are overcome. This statement reveals that Jewish belief often was that when one's personal sins uh, must be atoned for before he or she can experience healing. Again, many ancient Jews believed that disease or hardship came as a result of individual sin, whereas we in our culture today have a whole host of other different reasons we think disease comes. Okay, we attribute it to things like genetics or bad luck or bad diet or exposure to various causes for the disease. We don't often think that disease is attributed to one's individual sin. So when Jesus says this, son, your sins are forgiven, it would not be shocking or surprising to ancient people at all. In fact, some of them may have been thinking this way. But the second way I want to answer this, you know, what is Jesus doing when he says this? Why does he say this? Is I want to suggest that Christ's answer fits within the rest of what the scripture teaches regarding disease. And I actually want to take a moment, I want to take about three or four moments in a little pastoral guidance. I want to walk through with you, from my perspective, I would see disease and and, uh, sicknesses in this world. What does the scripture say about them? And how should we handle it? Then I want to bring it back to a thought about Jesus. So uh, in this moment of pastoral thought, I want to give you three foundational ideas regarding sickness, okay? And this is very important to me because I've heard many Christians actually say a lot of the wrong sorts of things about the source of sickness and disease. Someone will come to them for counsel or help, and sometimes I think we really blow it in how we try to help them or how we think about sickness or disease in our own lives, whether that be some physical disease or mental disease or something like that. And so this is extremely important I would encourage you to write down these three concepts or to think about them with me. If I am wrong, then come tell me, okay? But use the scripture to show me, okay? Not not anything else, okay? Now, here are the three foundational points. First, we need to start out with the idea that all disease is a result of sin. All disease is a result of sin. That is, disease came into the world through the sin of Adam and Eve in the garden. You go to Romans chapter five, of course, the worst form of disease the world will ever know is death, right? Death, 
By sin came death, Romans chapter five. So all sin or all disease came into the world through the sin of Adam and Eve. If someone experiences disease, you name the disease, cancer, blindness, physical illness, it is because of sin, original sin. Now adding to that, okay, so foundational principle number one, all disease is a result of sin. Number two, we must allow for the possibility that disease or hardship is result of personal sin and divine punishment. Okay, so built into your framework of how you should be thinking and talking about disease, we must allow for the possibility that disease or hardship is a result of personal sin and divine punishment. I mean, there are clear examples in the Old and the New Testament scriptures of people who sinned and were held accountable by God, by God punishing them with some sort of physical uh, malady, sickness, or disease. I think of our last study in 1 Corinthians, there were some people who abused the table of the Lord and what happened to them? They were sick. Some of them had died because of their sinful abuse of the Lord's table. I think of the psalmist David in the Old Testament. Remember when he talks about what had happened to him after after he had sinned with Bathsheba and he hadn't confessed that sin? He talks about the sort of depression that he felt because of the sin that was in his life and his bones kind of waxing old or growing old. His, His body was groaning. He was suffering great depression because of his sin. And so whatever our view of sickness is, we must allow for the possibility that disease or hardship in our life or the life of someone else may be the result of personal sin, a divine punishment. So back in this text, it it may be that Jesus traces the paralytic's specific illness to his sin. Okay, we, we just don't know for sure. It may be that he knows that he had sinned and his sin had led to this illness. And so he says, your sins are forgiven. But then finally, there's one other part of this foundational concept regarding sickness I think that we need to understand. Finally, we must never assume that disease or hardship is a result of personal sin. So as we're counseling someone else, as we're dealing even with our own heart and our own thoughts, we must, we must never assume it, that disease or illness is a result of that person's sin. Okay, well, why do we think that? Well, John chapter nine, remember that story James read this morning? You you with me still? This is important stuff, okay? The way you view sickness and illness. In John chapter nine, as Jesus is, you know, answering the disciples, they ask that question, who sinned this man or his parents that the man was born blind? What is Jesus' answer? You're wrong both ways. Neither did this man sin nor his parents, but that the work of God might be made manifest through him. See, there was a reason this man was born blind, and that was so that Jesus could come one day and heal him, and it would be a powerful demonstration to the world of the the, the authority of the Son of Man. His sickness was not attributed to his own sin or the sin of his parents, but so that much could be made out of Jesus. The book of Job also is a good read about this as well. Remember the book of Job? 
just encourage you as a church, as, you know, as we equip you for counseling, as we start empowering you to counsel other people, we, we must not make the same mistake that the counselors of Job made. They kept going to him, calling for him to probe the depths of his own soul, to figure out what sin it is that he committed that led to all of this. All along the way, they don't know that Satan desired to test Job and was given the opportunity to test and tempt him towards sin. So who knows the difference between disease and hardship inflicted because of personal sin or disease or hardship inflicted by something else? Who knows the difference between those two things? Answer that for me. No one one here. Someone there. Who knows? God does. Who doesn't? You and I. We. We don't know. So, instead of pontificating as experts in the field of this or that, we should listen to people going through physical hardships. We should pray with them. We should point them to Christ, and we should encourage them to draw near to God with pure and holy hearts that only can be ours in the completed work of Jesus Christ. So having explored what the scriptures teach about the root of disease, Jesus somehow connects this man's disease to his own sin, or he sees that the man not only has a physical problem, but he has a spiritual problem too. And so this is Jesus' initial response that leads to the scribe's skepticism in verses six and seven. So look in your Bible. It says, now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts. Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Here, the scribe's questions lead them to the internal conviction that Christ was a blasphemer. They wonder how Jesus could say something like, son, your sins are forgiven you. Since only God forgives sins. Okay, now I want to make a few statements about the scribes here in verses 6 and 7. I think that will help. Just two statements. I think, first, I think the scribes are right in saying that only God can ultimately forgive sins. Uh, there was a church father by the name of Irenaeus, and he, he rightfully asked this question. He said, how can sin be remitted, be forgiven, unless the very one against whom one has sinned grants the pardon? And when he used the word one, he capitalized it. How can a sin be forgiven unless God is the one who forgives? The word forgiveness means to let something go, to send it away. And while it is true that you might sin against someone else and need to seek forgiveness of that person, you're not done at that point because ultimately every sin a person commits is against God. And every sin demands his forgiveness. You see, he is the only one who can clear you of all of your sins. You say, well, where do you see that in the Bible, preacher? Let me give you two Old Testament texts just to write down. You could write them down. I'll read them for you. Uh, But the first one is Isaiah 43 and verse 25. Isaiah 43, verse 25. The prophet Isaiah says this from uh, concerning God. He says, I, 
I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. I will not remember your sins. Isaiah is proclaiming the word of the Lord, uh, the word from God. And God says, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions. And add to that Daniel chapter 9, verses uh, 8 and 9. Uh, I love Daniel 9. There's this exchange where Daniel's confessing his sin and sins of the people, and then he goes right to some quality or characteristic of God, and he goes back and forth. It's to us and then to you, O Lord, to us, to you. In verse 8, he says, To us, O Lord, belongs open shame to our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers, because we have sinned against you, but to you, the Lord, our God, belongs mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him. Daniel says, to you, God, belongs forgiveness. Forgiveness is something that belongs to God. I think these prophets knew that forgiveness of sins is rightly something that God must do. It belongs to him. And so this is an absolutely key concept back in Mark chapter 2. Only God has the authority to forgive sins forgive you, to release you from your sin. So the scribes were right in saying only God can forgive sins, but secondly, they might not have really understood what Christ is doing here well. Christ is not denying that God, that only God can forgive sins. Christ agrees with that because that agrees with the Scriptures. Christ is claiming to be God with this statement. He can forgive sins because he is God. I'll make a point of application for you uh, here before we continue in the text just very briefly, and that is that there are many systems of religion in this world that will lie to you and claim that Christ never claimed to be God. Think of uh, religions like Mormonism, Jehovah's Witness, Scientology, other religions like this who say, you know what, that whole thing about Jesus being God, Jesus never claimed that for himself. That's just something that the church created like in the fourth century. However, that view of Jesus fails to reckon with passages like this one. Jesus is not claiming to be a special man who can forgive a few sins. He is claiming to be God in human flesh who can forgive sins because he is God. So Mark tells us here what the scribes were thinking. Now, if you haven't read ahead in the story, you might be wondering, how in the world does Mark know what they're thinking? Is this something the Spirit relates to him? But while you keep reading, you find out in Jesus' fuller response in verses 8 through 11, how he, how he hears this. So look at verse 8. It says, And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they had questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sons are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed and go home. So Jesus, in Jesus' fuller response, he starts by revealing what the scribes were thinking, and he asks them a question. 
The question is, which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven. Or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk. Now, honestly, as I went through this text this week, uh, this caused me some uh, consternation. Took me a while to kind of work through this and to think through, you know, what is the nature of Jesus's question? What is he really, really trying to get to? And, you know, there are different ideas on it, but I'll just try to simply convey to you what I think Jesus is asking them. Again, he, he asks what's easier to say, not what's easier to do. Yes, is it would it be easier for me to say, sons, your, your sins are forgiven you, or, or for me to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk? It may be that he's just simply saying one is easier to say than the other, shorter. But I think it goes beyond that. I think that it's easier, that, that I think the answer that the scribe should have provided, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven. Um, and that it's easier because it's impossible to verify. That's the, the view I would take on this. It's impossible to verify. I mean, how can you falsify someone who says your sins are forgiven? You you can't see evidence of that. However, if Jesus says, rise, pick up your bed and walk, and the the guy doesn't get up, he can't move, you can easily, easily see that he uh, is not doing what he said. One one commentator said it this way, R.T. France. He said, a visible healing is hard evidence whereas a merely verbal claim to forgive sins cannot be falsified. He said, to tell a paralyzed man to get up and walk exposes the speaker if ridicule, or to ridicule if it is not successful. So Jesus says that he was saying the easier thing. Uh, but there are other reasons why he said this. And this comes out as you keep reading here. The, the question then allows Christ to clarify why he said that the young man's sins were forgiven. He said this because he knew that when the, when the man would be healed, everyone would know that Jesus not only had the authority to heal, he could also forgive sins. Uh, there was an old commentator that wrote in, in the, the early 1900s, who I think nailed this, what Jesus is doing here and the point that he's making Uh, A.M. Hunter said this. He said, Jesus did the miracle which they could see that they may know that he had done the other that they could not see. So the point he's saying is, uh, Jesus performs a miracle in such a way, and he says this stuff about forgiving sins so that when he actually heals the man, they'll know this is a new thing. He's not just healing the man physically. He also, this man, has the authority to do the significant work of healing him spiritually and forgiving him of his sins. And so after all of this debate, then Jesus turns to the man and heals him by saying, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And that leads ultimately to two results in verse 12. Two results, verse 12. Look look at verse 12. It says, and he arose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. First, the man immediately, sounds like Mark, doesn't it? He immediately picks up his bed. And I like that next phrase. He goes out before them all. 
including the scribes. This paralyzed man picks up his bed and he walks out before them all. It's a powerful demonstration of the authority of Jesus. But then the second result, the text says that they were all amazed and that they all glorified God. Little bit of debate regarding does the all include the whole crowd, all the people, or all the people and all the scribes. Regardless, it says all here. They were all amazed. They all glorify God for this thing, and then they respond in this very powerful, interesting way. We have never seen anything like this before. They'd seen healings before in Capernaum. They'd never seen anything like this. Never seen a miracle that verified one's ability to forgive sins. So in our text here, Jesus emphasizes that he can forgive sins. And he absolutely floors the people. As we close, I want to make just a few applications. And I'm going to borrow a concept from a preacher by the name of Daniel Aiken as he applied this to his congregation. He says, every person will have to answer two questions about forgiveness. First, is forgiveness possible? The answer to that question, according to the scriptures, is gloriously what? Is forgiveness possible? Yes. The second question is who? Who can forgive sins? And the answer to that in our text this morning is only one person has the unrivaled authority to forgive sins, and it's Jesus Christ. Perhaps you've known this concept for a long time. Maybe you heard the Bible stories. You heard this story perhaps in your four, five, six. And you learned years ago that Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. I pray that as we reflect upon that today, that this would be a glorious reminder. Now, if you're a child of God, you should be so thankful for the fact that Jesus has the right to forgive sins. If you're a Christian, I'm sure you sin this week, right? We sin every week. Aren't you glad that you serve someone who has the authority to forgive your sin? Perhaps this afternoon as we, as we leave here, we should leave here in a, a spirit of worship, thanking God for the one who had the authority to forgive all of our sins because of the work of Christ. It may be that there are some people in the room who have never had their sins forgiven. You're here and you've never believed in the one who did this miracle. I trust that you would see just clearly from the scriptures that we're dealing with a different type of person here. We're dealing with the God-man, Jesus Christ, who can forgive your sin, the sin that separates you from God. And so I would encourage you this morning before you leave here to go to the Lord and to pray and to pray to the one and believe in the one who can say, son, your sins are forgiven. Let's pray together.
Father, as we come to this text of Scripture this morning, we come to a passage, a story that I know I've heard for years. I perhaps first reflected upon it when I was in grade school, maybe even earlier. Father, I confess to you that in my own life, my own experience, this sort of thing can be commonplace. Uh, this sort of thought. I, someone to ask me, does Jesus have the authority to forgive sins? I say, of course he does. But Lord, in that familiarity, I think that sometimes I, I, I'm just not struck by, by the absolute power of Jesus to do this. Lord, in my own heart, I pray that as I leave here this morning as a sinner saved by the grace of Jesus Christ, I pray that I might worship the Son, Jesus, who has authority to forgive. Lord, if there's anyone in the room who has never believed in the name of the the one who has authority, the one who can forgive sins, the one who can read the minds of skeptical scribes, the one who can do all of these things, the one who died on a cross but then rose again to save them. I pray that if there's someone here who's never believed in these things, who's never been released from their sins, that they would come and believe in the name of Jesus. We thank you so much for revealing more to us about your son today and for reminding us of these things. And we pray, Lord, that as we go throughout the week, as we go throughout the week as followers of Christ, that we would rejoice that our sins are forgiven. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's stand to sing together about this amazing grace from the first century, Mark chapter 2, to the 18th century in the penning of this song. Now today we together celebrate this amazing grace. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Yeah. 
thousand years bright shining as the sun we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. You know, this morning, uh, we worked through a text about a man who was paralyzed, completely needing Christ. And in a spiritual way, that is true of every one of us completely dead in trespasses and sins. And if it wouldn't have been for this man who had the authority to forgive sins, none of us would be forgiven. So as we leave here, I think we can rejoice in the authority of our Savior, Jesus Christ, that frees us from our sins. As we go, we want to invite any one of you to join us, if you would, for our uh, adult Bible studies. This will meet at 11 o'clock all across the campus. If you've never been to one of these before, you can go by the Welcome Center and they'll give you some information about how you can be a part of one of these Bible studies. They go for about an hour, we break into smaller groups all over this building and the building right next door. And uh, we love to study the Bible, so we'll continue to do that together and to pray together. And then uh, we want to invite you as well to remember to join us for Grace Gatherings tonight. Um, perhaps you've been looking for a way to get to know some people in our church uh, this is an excellent way. We'll be meeting in homes in different locations all across, uh, all across the area, Tidewater area. And so I'd encourage you to join us for one of those grace gatherings. You can, you can learn more about uh, grace gatherings by going to one of the Bible studies today. Uh, let's make sure we do that this afternoon and, and encourage each other in our walk with the Lord. Let me close this with a word of prayer. Lord, we rejoice in the authority of Jesus we rejoice in his perception of the real situation with this paralyzed man. Lord, he knew that the man not only needed physical help, but he needed forgiveness of sins. God, in the same way, you look down on each one of us who know you as your Savior, and you saw our need. You knew that we were dead in trespasses and sins. But then you awakened us by the power of the Spirit to believe in the divine Son of God who has authority to say, your sins are forgiven. As we leave here today, may we rejoice in our forgiveness in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.